0: When we left off last week in Nehemiah chapter 8, we saw the people had just spent the entire day listening to the word of God being read to them and taught to them. And as we turn to the second part of Nehemiah chapter 8 today, we're going to see what they do is take what they've been hearing and they put it into practice. In James one we we're told, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. As we talked about last time, God isn't interested in us just filling our heads with Bible knowledge. But it needs to travel that 18 inches from our head to our hearts where it is then lived out in our lives as our lives are changed and we walk with him. So I invite you to turn with me in the book of Nehemiah to Nehemiah chapter 8 where I want us to pick up today reading verses 13 and 14. It says, Then on the second day the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that that they might gain insight into the word of the law. And they found written in the law of the Lord where he had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in Booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, last week we saw that as the, the nation gathered to hear the word read to them, that it was the first day of the seventh month. And we talked about how that day is Rosh Hashanah, the Hebrew that means top of the year, or it's the Jewish New Year. And then we talked about how that after 10 days after that was Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, this, this high and holy day. Well, five days following Yom Kippur is something called the Feast of Booths. It's the Hebrew word Sukkot. And this is what we see mentioned here in verse 14 as it's talking about this feast that is being celebrated in the seventh month. Now, as this group is gathered together on day two to hear Ezra read the scriptures, you'll notice that it's different than the group we saw in verses 1 and 2, because in verses 1 and 2, it was the whole assembly, the men, the women, those who were old enough to have insight into the law. But here, we're told that it's a subgroup of the, the fathers of the households. These are the leaders of the clans. These are the, the, it's a smaller group. And what Ezra's doing is he's, he's having a smaller group where they can go deeper into the law, where they can talk about the applicational parts that each is then to take and teach to their households, to their, their tribes or groups. And this is a model that we see mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.2 in the New Testament. There it tells us, "...and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." Last week, I talked about the the privilege I have of going overseas at various times to teach in seminaries or to churches and groups of people, and one of the countries I mentioned was Romania. And about a year after I had been in Romania teaching a group of 18 pastors, I received an email from one of these pastors. His name is Patrika, And he said in his email, I won't read the whole thing, but he said, I'm involved in the leading of thirteen training groups in local churches in the Greater Botsani area. He said I'm seeking to establish a discipleship relationship with the leaders in each of these groups, which who will then be future leaders of other training groups. He says my wife Marcia is also involved in leading eight groups of women through similar training courses where I taught her what you had taught us. He says there's a huge untouched need among the women of Romania. And so if you add up these groups that each have between 15 and 25 people in them, there's easily 300 people that are being trained in Romania, and he's just one of 18 pastors. So if you take and multiply out that, that multiplication ministry that is taking place, you can see this enormous impact that can happen. What I want you to do for a moment is just look around you. It's okay. Look at the people around you. You can smile at them while you're looking at them as you look at this many people who week in and week out are taught the word of God, I don't know if you realize this, but if you attend a church like Wayside where the Bible is taught, in a year, you have more theological training, more biblical insight and knowledge given to you than pastors like Patrika will have in their entire lifetime. You are receiving more in-depth Bible teaching in a year than most uh, vocational pastors and missionaries around the world will have in their entire lifetime. And so as you think about what you are learning, who are you teaching it to? Where is the, the knowledge that you're gaining being given out to others? If you were to take out a piece of paper this morning and you were to write down the names of people that you are teaching it to, who would you put down? Could you be like Patrika who said, well, I started with my spouse? Do you as a man or a woman teach your spouse? Do you who are parents or grandparents teach your kids? Those who may be single or in workplace or school settings, do you have a Bible study where you're sharing what you're learning with other people? Who are the groups that you're teaching it to? If you're here at Wayside, I know many of you are, are teaching our students, our, our children's ministry. You're pouring into these, uh, the next generations of the things that you're learning. But do you go outside of Wayside and, and teach these things to others? Now, I know this is happening because I see it. Uh, just this last week, I was at McDonald's. Now, before you get mad at me, my, my doctor was actually there at McDonald's. I saw him. Uh, he goes here to Wayside, Dr. David Player, and he was meeting with Al T. Brugge. And some of you know these men. These guys get together and they memorize Scripture. Not just a couple of verses. These guys memorize whole books of the Bible. And they sit there in McDonald's and they they go back and forth sharing the scriptures that they know. These guys are 75 years old. And they have vital ministries, not just of memorizing God's word, but in their workplace. Dr. Player has a a ministry into the medical community and others. He's sharing with Al Teabragi, who's a pharmacist, goes around the world on mission trips. He's sharing this. Uh, I see men at Waterburger. You guys are starting to see a theme here, I know. Uh, now they have salads in all these places I'm talking about. <laughs> Not that I eat them, but they have them there. Um, I see men at Waterburger uh, that have Bible studies. There's Brian and Jim in one booth. There's there's Herb and John in another booth having studies. And then I, you know, was in Chick Fil A another day. I know this sounds bad, but I'm you know I'm an equal opportunity person. I find soup and salad places to eat into. I'm meeting men in the morning before they're going to work, and as I was meeting with this one man in Chick-fil-A over in the corner uh, was was Michael Baird, and he was meeting with uh, David Salisbury and, and uh, Mr. Armstrong. They were over there in a booth having a Bible study. Now, ladies, I'm not in La Madeline that much or Panera Bread, so maybe there are studies going on there that I don't see. But I know we have our women's sojourn groups. I know we have these mug and muffin fellowships that are happening. So I know that this is happening outside of the doors of Wayside. But as I'm talking about these things, what are you doing? Who are the people you're sitting down with at school? Who are the people at the base where you're, you're serving, that you're, you're having Bible studies and impacts, where you're mentoring and passing on uh, what we see you know, for those of you who have been, as I said, involved in a church like Wayside, you already have what you need to share with others. Back when I was still in seminary, there was a, a morning that I, I had just, you know, I told you all before I was a cop. I would work midnight eight, and then I'd go to class, and so I always needed some caffeine. And after the first class of the morning, I went over to the student center, and my, my caffeine of choice is Dr. Pepper. Uh, by the time I cream and sugar coffee, it's that. So I just go for it immediately. And I walked over to the vending machine, and I was about to get uh, a Dr. Pepper, and there was one of the, the men there servicing the candy machines. And his name was Patrick. I knew that because I saw his name on his shirt. And you hear me talk about the one-minute moment here at Wayside, where I say, whenever you're on campus, uh, see somebody you don't know. Just walk up to them, introduce yourself. See how you can encourage them or serve them. And so as I saw Patrick, this man filling the vending machine there at Dallas Seminary, I asked myself, is, is this place any different than anywhere else that Patrick goes? I mean, I thought about this guy coming on campus, surrounded by future pastors and missionaries, men and women who are being trained for the ministry, and, and I wondered, is it any different for him walking on this campus than it is any other place that he fills machines? And so as I looked at his shirt and I saw his name Patrick, I said, I said excuse me, Patrick. I said, uh, I just want to tell you thank you uh, for filling the, the vending machines for us. And he kind of looked at me strange and he goes, well, it's my job. And I said, well, we appreciate you doing that because it gives us something where we can get a snack while we're studying the Bible. And, and then I said, you know, speaking of the Bible, I read about you uh, in the Bible this morning. Well, now he looked at me again, kind of funny. And he said, well, what did it say? And I said, well, it said, for God so loved Patrick, that if Patrick would believe in his son Jesus, he would have eternal life. And he said, that's not really in there, is it? And I said, well, actually, it is. I said, can I show you? And I put down my backpack, and I pulled out my Bible, and I turned to John 3.16. And I put it in his hand, and I said, will you read this with me? And I, I said, it says, for God so loved the world. I said, Patrick, you're in the world, aren't you? And he said, Yeah. And I said, so it says that whoever believes in him, I said, that could be you, Patrick, that if Patrick would believe in Jesus Christ, it says you'll have eternal life. And I said, have you ever done that? And he said, you know, I don't think I really know how to do that. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does that that stuff say? And I said, well, if you have a few minutes, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. And so he pushed the rack in, he locked up the machines, you know, you can't trust all these pastors with an open candy machine around. <laughs> and so we walked over and we sat down at a table in the student center and we went through the scriptures, some questions he had, and before it was all over, Patrick received Christ right there among the candy bars. And I, g- I gave Patrick my phone number and I said, look, I want you, I want you to find a good church and I said, if you can't find one, I want you to call me. And I said, if you have any questions, uh, please call me because I want to make sure you begin to grow in your faith. Well, that night, Patrick called me, and he said, Roger. I, I went home, and, and I shared with my living girlfriend all the things we talked about, and she accepted Jesus. And, and then he said, and her brother's getting out of jail tomorrow tomorrow. And we want to talk to to him about Jesus, but we don't think we know enough to answer all the questions he's going to have, so could you meet with us? And so we set up a time the next day after that, and we met in a shopping mall. And I sat down, and they talked to her brother, and we went through, and before it was all over, this man accepted Christ. Now, here was a guy who was a brand-new believer, and within two days, he had already helped to lead two other people to the Lord. You know, so many times we sit here and we say, "Well, you know, I, I have to wait till I know more about the Bible. I have to learn more before I can talk about my faith or share or anything like that. But friends, if you know Jesus Christ, you already know enough to lead somebody to the Lord, because you have a personal testimony, and you can say the difference God has made in your life. You can go to somebody and say, "I read about you in the Bible today," and show them John 3:16. That's. What God calls us to do. We don't have to wait until we have all this further knowledge. Hudson Taylor, who was a famous missionary to China, talks about a time that he was watching a Chinese pastor talking to a new believer. And this pastor said to this young man, he said, How long have you been a Christian? And the guy said, Well, three weeks. And the pastor said, That's wonderful. How many people have you shared the gospel with? And this young man said, Pastor, I told you I've only been a Christian three weeks. And this pastor said to him, when you light a candle, it doesn't wait until it burns down halfway before it begins to give off light. It starts to give off light immediately. And this is something that you can do. Every one of us as a Christian has light, and we can shine it into the darkness of the places where we are. Now, if you're saying, but Roger, I really do want to know more. I want to be better prepared to answer questions. That's wonderful. Wonderful. We have lots of places for you to learn that, not only Sunday morning, but in adult Bible fellowships, these Sunday school programs you can come to where there are smaller groups of discipling taking place. We have small group ministries out in the community. Uh, it can be through the men's and women's Bible studies. It can be through these one-on-one or small mentoring relationships I was talking about a moment ago. So ask yourself, what are you doing to learn more about God and his word? And the primary way we do it is what we talked about last week where I said we have the privilege of having this. Every one of us has access to a Bible, whether it's in written form or an app on a phone or other things. And and we can spend time in God's word learning. How many of us this past week went home encouraged and challenged to say, I need to spend more time in God's word? And did you do it? If I was to take a survey this morning and say how much time... Did you spend reading the Bible this past week? What would you be able to put down? How much did we spend time reading God's word this past week? As we're looking at Nehemiah 8:18, 8, it says he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day until the last. Are we those who are reading from the book, reading God's word daily? There's an old poem called Side by Side And you can tell how old it is from the mention of TV Guide in it. But let me read this poem for you. It says, They lie on the table side by side, the Holy Bible and the TV Guide. One is well-worn and cherished with pride. No, not the Bible, the TV Guide. One is used daily to help folks decide. No, not the Bible, but the TV Guide. As the pages are turned, what shall they see? What does it matter? Just turn on the TV. So they open the book in which they confide, no, not the Bible, but the TV guide. The word of God is seldom read, maybe a verse before they fall into bed. Exhausted and sleepy and tired as can be, not from reading the Bible, but from watching TV. So then back to the table side by side lie the Holy Bible and the TV guide. No time for prayer, no time for the word. The plan of salvation is seldom heard. But forgiveness of sin, so full and free, is found in the Bible, not on TV. You know, if you're having trouble finding time to read the Bible, how much time could you gain if you turned off the TV? Or if you set aside your phone or, or just turned the Internet off and took some of that screen time that you have watching those things and instead use them to spend time in God's Word? We need to be those who do as they did here in verse 18 where it says they read God's word daily. It says he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Now, what happens is as they're reading the Bible, as they're listening to the scriptures read to them, as they're learning what the law says, they're hearing about these feasts, these ordinances that God had proclaimed that they they take part in. We see this happening in verses 15 through 16. It says, so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all the cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out into the hills and bring in olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of every leafy tree to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them in and they made booths for themselves, each on, the, on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in, this, in the square of the gate of Ephraim. So what the people are doing here is they hear about the Feast of Booths. The, the Bible talks about it in the book of Leviticus. Uh, we find in Leviticus 23, 42 through 43, where it says, you shall live in booths for seven days all the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generation may know. This is, this is a reminder to them of the past. It says that they may know that I, I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them up from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Hebrew word is Sukkot. It means booths. Sometimes it's translated as tabernacles. You hear about the Feast of bus. Uh It was just celebrated in October 13th through the 20th on our calendars. So you have the Feast of Booths or Sukkoth. It's sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also known as the Feast of Ingathering because it's connected to the final harvest uh, in Israel. And so what would happen is people would build these temporary tent-like structures, these stick structures, and often they would hang some of the produce of the harvest in there, and these were designed to remind them of the past when the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness and how God had to take care of them when they had no home of their own. How he provided manna in the morning and he fed them. How water was given to them in the desert. And now uh, that they had food, the, the, the harvest, again, these were reminders of all the blessing and to thank God. It was a reminder of God's protection as they were out in the wilderness without walls. Remember, the people had been without walls in the city for 140 plus years. And now in 52 days, the walls were rebuilt. And they're within the security of the walls and they're looking around and they're saying, God has blessed us. God has protected us. And so these are all the things they're being reminded of as they celebrate. Verse 17 says, the entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and they lived in them. The sons of Israel had, had, listen to this, the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. This is Joshua, the commander with Moses. It says, nobody had been doing this since the days of Joshua to that day. And then there was great rejoicing. The people here This is a law. This is an ordinance God wants. And it says we're going to do it because God's word says to do it. And if you go to Israel, this is what you'll see. Like I said, they just finished celebrating uh, the Feast of Booths on October 20th on our calendars. And so if you go to Israel, we read where Nehemiah said on the flat roofs. Back then, remember, the homes had a flat top. So all throughout the city, you'll see these booths that are built up on balconies. And we read how it was in the courtyard and it was in the square and various things. So as you walk all throughout the city, this this is what it looks like in Israel during the Feast of Sukkot. And people will move out of their homes into these temporary structures. And it was designed, as I said, to remind them of all the blessings of God. Think for a moment what it would be like if you went home. And you went into your backyard and you pitched a tent or you built a little stick structure and you lived in it for a week. And as you're living out there in your backyard, you don't have your kitchen, your bathroom, you don't have your air conditioning or in this right now is the heat for some of us. You know, you don't have these things and as you're living out there, you'd be looking at your house, your, your home and you'd be thinking, gosh, I really wish I was in my home. And it was a reminder to you of the blessings of all that you had. And as they're living here, it reminds them of God's provision and protection and his blessings. And it was also a reminder to them that this is not their home. Remember, they lived in them for a week, and then they would move back in. So as the days were counting down, and they thought about going into their homes, I want to remind us that whatever home we live in, a house, an apartment, whatever it is that you're living in, that is not our homes, brothers and sisters. The Bible tells us our citizenship is in heaven. In John, Jesus said, I go ahead to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. God says our home, our permanent home is in heaven. Right now, we are simply tabernacling. These were called the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, they're temporary structures. And it was a reminder to us that this is, this is not our home. We are simply moving through this place. As you think about the ways that you're blessed, how often do you stop and thank God for it? You know, we're coming into Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving is a time where we often sit around with friends or family, and we say, let's talk about the way we've been blessed. What is something we can be thankful for? Maybe you sit at your kitchen table or wherever you are with friends, and you say, let's all say a couple things we're thankful for. But you know, it shouldn't be something that we wait for Thanksgiving, Or a special time like Boos for the Jews to say we're thankful for these things. We should instead have a heart, an attitude of gratitude as we go through our life. Uh, There was a study done that said, that found that if people will will find five things every day to be thankful for, just five things, it will change their outlook on life. It will make them more positive. It will give them a, a, a heart of gratitude instead of being you know, those who are more depressed or in despair. How many of us got up this morning and just thanked God for the extra hour of sleep? You know, we heard Jason during the announcements. He didn't sound bitter, did he? Uh, <laughs> he has a bunch of little kids. And so he was talking about how his girls got up early and he didn't get the extra hour. But how many of us said, God, thank you for one extra hour of sleep? How many of us thank God that our eyes opened and we actually got out of bed this morning, that we were alive? How many of us thank God for the food we had for breakfast or that we're going to have at lunch? The car we had to get here, the clothes we have on our back. I mean, it's easy to find things to be thankful for that so often we take for granted. And the Jews, as they moved into these booths, were reminded of all the blessings that they had, the things to be thankful for. You know, one of the things I do in my prayer time is is I try to be grateful to God. You've heard me use the acronym ACTS before. A-C-T-S, A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. And what so many of us do is we spend most of our time on that S of our shopping list, right? We go right to the needs. And what I'll try to do is I'll say, how can I adore God? What are things I can thank him for in the T of thanksgiving? And just a simple way to do that is to take the alphabet. Take the alphabet, A, B, C, D, and go down the list. And start with A, and either think of something to th- adore God for. Think of an attribute of his. I and mean, it can be as simple as saying, God, you're awesome. B, God, you're a big God. You're benevolent. C, thank you for Christ, for the Messiah, for sending Jesus to save us. And go down the list. And as you do this, what you'll find is it, it refocuses your time of, from asking to thanking God. For all the the things that that he's given to you and blessed you with as well as for who he is. And sometimes what you'll find is you may say, well, gosh, I get stuck on D. I don't know what to say for D. Well, that's great because it makes you slow down. It makes you stop and think. And you may not have time necessarily to get through the entire alphabet. But find ways to do what we're talking about today. And it will change not only your, your prayer life but your perspective as well. Now, as we're talking about the the feast and the the blessings and the things that are happening and how we don't live in our permanent home yet, Jesus Christ used the feast we're talking about to point people in his day to that truth as well. As you look in the New Testament, Jesus made the connection to our future home in heaven with what we're looking at here. In Nehemiah 8.18, it says there was a solemn assembly taking place. Uh, on the last day of the feast, and it was taking place at the water gate. Now, last week I talked about the water gate being a place of natural amplification. Remember, there was a a body of water there. The pool of Siloam was right by this gate, and you had flat walls, so the amplification. But there was another important reason. That's where the people were gathered, because there was something that happened on the last day of the Feast of Booths that is connected to everything we're talking about. There was a spring outside of Jerusalem called the Gihon Spring. And King Hezekiah in the Old Testament built an underground secret tunnel that went outside the walls of the city and, and brought the water into the, the city. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 32. And so this water would come into a place called the Pool of Siloam. And at the end of the feast, the priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would, he would fill this pitcher with water. And then he would come and, and there would be this procession. There were singers and instrumentalists and they would process through the city and they would go to the altar, the brazen altar that was there in the temple. And they would circle it seven times before they would take this pitcher of water and they would pour it out as a drink offering. Drink offerings could be wine, it could be water. Water was very precious. You know, we take for granted water in our day. We can turn on a spigot. Even when we were in drought, we could turn on a sprinkler outside to water vegetation or have a garden hose. If God did not provide water for the people in this day, they would die. And so water was something very precious. And I want to remind you that last week we saw they were standing in the sun for six hours, listening to the law be read. Have you ever been outside in the sun for a length of time like that. And you know how thirsty you get. And, and imagine somebody walking by you with a pitcher of water. And your, your dry mouth starts to kind of, oh, I wish I could have a drink. And then this priest gets up in view of everybody. And, and he's pouring it out. And you're going, oh, I'm so thirsty. I wish I could have. Some of you are getting thirsty right now, I know. And this is, this is the setting of What's happening? And as the people are processing around, as the songs are being sung, they're singing from Psalm 118.25. Psalm 118.25 tells us, O Lord, do save. We beseech thee, O Lord. We beseech thee, do send prosperity. And, And as this is happening, the people are waving palm branches. And if you're starting to get a picture of Palm Sunday, that's exactly what's happening. Because on Palm Sunday, you'll remember Jesus was coming into the city. The people were waving branches. They were laying their garments and branches down. And you'll remember the people were crying out, uh, Hosanna. That's the Hebrew word that we find here that literally is translated, save now. We sing it as a praise song because we can look back at Jesus coming to save us. But people who were waiting for the Messiah were making it an earnest prayer. It was a messianic psalm pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And the people were saying, send the Messiah. Save now, God. And this is what was taking place as this whole ceremony was going on. I want you to turn over in your Bible to John chapter 4. It's in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Because I want to show you the connection of what we're reading about here with all that I've just explained with Jesus. In John chapter 4, it's before Jesus comes into the city. There he has the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you look about John 4.10, this is where the the woman at the well and Jesus are having a conversation. And, And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink. Remember, Jesus asked this woman, would you give me a drink as you're drawing water from the well? And he says, if you knew who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Christ goes on to say, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life now, remember, I told you that there's this water ceremony where they're processing around with the pitcher and people are crying out, save now, God. And if you turn over to John chapter 7, you see where Jesus tells us what's happening. In fact, if you don't have your Bible with you, let me put it up here on the screen. In John seven thirty-seven, it says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, what feast are we talking about? Sukkot. We're talking about the feast is over, this is the setting. Jesus is there in the square, this is taking place, there's the water ceremony and it says now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if any man is thirsty, remember how I kind of described the setting, you're in the heat, you're sitting there, you want water? Jesus is a master teacher, he's always grasping the best way to communicate the word and so here's all these people going, yeah, we're thirsty. He stood up and cried out, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Do you remember what he told the woman at the well? If you knew who I was, you would ask me for the drink of living water. You go on to John seven forty through 41. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? The people understood very plainly what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, right now you're singing, save now, O God, send the Messiah. And Jesus stands up in the midst of this and says, I'm here. It's me. If you want the Messiah, I'm here. Just come to me. If you're thirsty... Spiritually thirsty, come, and I will give you the living water. And this is the setting. This is all that is taking place as we're reading this. And as Jesus makes this statement, it says, some recognized and said, this is the Christ. And they came to faith in him. If you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus, Understanding who he is, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, who was sent, who tabernacled among us, took on flesh and blood for a temporary time to dwell among us so that he could ultimately go to the cross to die as the penalty, the payment, the sacrifice for our sins. This is what this is pointing us to today, who Jesus is. Jesus said in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The Bible tells us in Romans ten nine, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. If you understand who Jesus is and what it is he did for us, it says you will be saved. Jesus says in John four fourteen, whoever drinks of the water that I give, I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, he offers you the drink that you need for eternal life this morning. He offers you the opportunity to place your faith and trust and come to him. As we end, we're coming to the communion table And as we come to the communion table, what it does is it points us to everything we've talked about today. It points us to who Jesus is and what he did for us. When Christ came, when he left his throne in heaven, he took on flesh and blood. He tabernacled among us. He lived in the temporary form of a man. So that he could be the ultimate sacrifice to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. And he invites us to come to him. He says, if you knew who I was to the woman at the well, he said to the people in by the water gate. If you're thirsty, come to me. And today he invites us to come to him as well. John 1:12 tells us but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. And so this morning I'll ask you is there a time you can point to in your life where you received Jesus Christ as your savior or you understood that you were a sinner. The word sin simply means to miss the mark, to be less than perfect. All of us have failed, all of us have sinned. And the Bible tells us because we're sinners we owe a penalty of death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And in a moment, the tray is going to be passed by you, and you can reach in and take both cups. They're seated together. And as you take the cup, one will contain a piece of bread, and the other one has a cup of juice. And what these represent is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ the one who came to give his life to save you and me from our sins. And if you've never accepted him as your Savior, I invite you today to take the bread and the the grape juice and to say to God as you take it, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I owe the penalty of death. And I thank you that you came and took my place, that you died for me. Remember Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so you can become a son or a daughter of God this morning. You can drink of the living water. You can accept his gift of new and eternal life that he offers to you. For the rest of us who have received that gift in the past, this is the time for us to look at our lives, to think of any unconfessed sin we we have, and to ask God for his forgiveness. So as the elements are past, take the two cups together and hold them, and I'll lead us as we take these together. Let's use this time to go to the Lord and prepare our hearts for him. Will you service, please? So we have in our hand a piece of bread. We just read how Jesus talked about himself being the living water. There were also times that he referred to himself as the bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread. And he came to be the bread of life, the sacrifice for us. He came to be the, the one that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God. As he came in John one twenty nine, John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus took on flesh and blood because the Bible tells us that there had to be a sacrifice, a permanent and perfect one. The bulls, the lambs, the sheep, the doves, the other offerings that were given could not remove the penalty of sin that we owed, but when Christ came, he could so he freely gave his life, taking on flesh and blood to go to the cross and take on my sin and yours. The body of Jesus Christ, he did in remembrance of him. And here we have a cup of juice, but it represents something so much more, the precious blood of the lamb. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And all those sacrifices I just mentioned could not wash away our sins. They were only a temporary covering. But when Christ came, he paid the penalty in full. He washed away the sins that you and I have when we come to him, the blood of Jesus, drinking in remembrance of him. We join me as we pray, please? Lord God, we thank you for your gift your gift of life. We've talked about all these other gifts you've given us, food and clothing and shelter, and even, yes, the gift of breath in our bodies where we're alive, but, Lord, we are most grateful for the gift of eternal life, bought and paid for through the blood of your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to leave your throne in heaven, to come and tabernacle among us, to dwell for a temporary time, in an earthly vessel so that you could be the sacrifice to save us and open the doors to heaven so that we could walk in one day as sons and daughters of yours and spend eternity with you in our home in heaven. Thank you again for this gift of life. Thank you for the gift of your word. May we who are recipients of that grace and knowledge of your word be messengers of your mercy and grace to the world around us as we end today. So thank you again for all you've done for us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.